continuing in Revelation, please. And we're continuing in chapter 14, and particularly we will be moving to verse 6, down to verse 11, and getting a picture of the three angels. We've already looked at the rest of the chapter, the opening parts of it, and been to Mount Zion. And we've really seen that it is beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth, the blessings and the security of the redeemed, as there they are, safe, surrounding the Lamb. Last week we spent a little time looking at the kind of people that these redeemed were. And you can see, we saw quite plainly, that there were those whose love and devotion and complete attention were focused on him, on the Lamb. They kept themselves from all other loves, the idea of the virgin, and they just kept themselves for him, and they followed the Lamb whithersoever he went. Their eyes looked to him, their lips praised him, their feet followed him, and their lives were consecrated to him. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And it's a true picture of what a, a Christian really is, one of the redeemed. They are, so they are people that truly, we love the Lord. With all our, you know, whatever the failings may be, it's there. In the heart of the true believer, there is a deep love for the Lamb who has redeemed them. And you, we love the Lord with all its implications, whether it means that, Days of difficulty, trials, persecutions or trouble doesn't make the difference. If it means the commandments of God are put in front of us, we love him and we keep those commandments and we just follow him. And we actually sing those words and mean them when it says, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think of the hymns I sing and you feel a bit ashamed of your own behavior, don't you? But there it is. Ultimately, there's in the heart of the truly born-again believer a love which is a begotten love. It's not there naturally in the old nature. It was put there by the hand of God, as it were, in the new birth, a nature capable of actually loving God. Romans 8 says it, doesn't it? The love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given unto us. And, you know, whether that is God's love put into us and shed abroad with abundance so that we feel it and know it, or whether that really means that there is our love for God put there, um, entered there by the presence of the Holy Spirit and growing to an overflowing fountain whereby it's shed abroad within you and flows out towards Him and seen in your life and devotion and character and service. Either way, it's also blessedly true. There is a love within us for the Lord, the Lamb who died on Calvary. And we saw the consequences that of these people who loved the Lord, who were so devoted and single-eyed in their attention, that in the world in which they lived, they had been morally pure, right? They had their white garments, they'd not been defiled. They had ethical standards. There was no guile, no deceit. There was veracity and truth and moral uprightness and integrity in their life. And then they were blameless. They were the sort of people that you just can't 
point the finger at them for wrongdoing and say, oh, him down there, you know, well, he seldom tells the truth. Or watch that other person, they're pretty crafty. Or never trust that one. That never should be said of the believer. And so it is as the redeemed live in a hostile world of, what have we had this morning? Darkness. So the light of God shines out from us because we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness right out of it into the kingdom of his dear son, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the light shone out from above, shone into us, and in the darkness shines out from us, giving others that same knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, we turn the... I was going to say, turn the pages of the picture book, as it were, and go to these next verses, and there's a very different scene that comes up in verses 6 through to 11. In verses 6 through to 11, we're getting introduced to, well, it's the fearful wrath of God. That's what we're coming to, the fearful wrath of God. And that's verses 6 to 13, really. And then the final judgment of God, the fearful wrath the final judgment. And, and just notice how the book's arranged. You know, we've just been to Mount Zion and there's so much light up there and so much glory and so much bliss and so much joy. But before we got to Mount Zion in the chapter before, we were looking at the beast, the two beasts on the earth, and there was so much darkness, so much horror, so much sadness, so much hopelessness. And then the scene was lit up by Mount Zion and now we're going to look in at a, another kind of dark, dark picture and after we get to the end of that dark picture and the final judgment at the end of the chapter, we'll be going and standing on the sea of glass and seeing the blessed portion of the redeemed and all the glory that lies ahead for the believer. But before we go there, there's so much here. Let's read the verses, verses 6. And as you read it, you know, please remember this is a picture, all right? Uh, it doesn't mean that the reality is any better than the picture. If anything, it's worse. But it's meant to convey an image and ideas and, and something to you. And the picture, firstly, there's something in the foreground that, that really dominates the whole picture. And then there's little bits of detail that, that fill out a little bit more some of the things that are not so clear. So think like that as you read. This is pictorial thing, all right? It's a vision. Because he says straight away in verse 6, And I saw, there it is, what? Another angel. One of God's messengers fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Yes, including those who are strangers to the covenants and to the promises of God. Yes, to those who are called Gentile sinners that sat in darkness and in the valley of the shadow of death. This message goes out universally to all. It is called the everlasting gospel. Angel 1. Then the angel speaks. Now I'll just sow a seed here. He says certain things. You say, so this is the gospel. He's preaching it for us. Well, is he? Or is he just saying some things and he's got the gospel to declare? Right? And what he's saying is, more an introductory thing to call people because he's got a message to give them. Now, I've just sowed a seed of thought there. I used to think that what was said in verse 7 was definitely the everlasting gospel. I doubt that really this is something more. He's got it to preach. 
And he's calling attention to the fact that, please, would you listen for there's certain things you need to know. Before you even get started with a message of mercy and hope, what does he say? With a loud voice, there's a certain command here. Fear God. Give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Fear God. Glorify God. Worship God. Verse 8. There follows another angel. And he says, Babylon is fallen. Is fallen. That great city. Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. All people were enjoy in, in were involved in the filthiness of her machinations. They came together and formed one seething mass of corruption and amorality. The angel says, Babylon, this organization, this combination, this unity against God, indeed this whole unity of evil, it's fallen, fallen, the great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, oh, there's a big warning here. There was a, there was a mighty rallying call in that first angel, calling people to fear God, to glorify God, to worship God. He's saying, I've got the everlasting gospel for you. Another angel comes out and says, oh, judgment's already begun. Babylon's fallen. Babylon's fallen. And a third angel comes out and said, you think it's bad that Babylon's fallen? Eh? You didn't hear the loud voice of that first angel with the everlasting gospel, didn't you? He says, I'm going to cry out with a loud voice. If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark on his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. In other words, undiluted. The wrath of God, not trickled out, the wrath of God poured out undiluted. Now we're we're moving gradually into a section of the book of Revelation that is going to deal with the horrors, the absolute horror of the wrath of God. And it will be quite a subject as we move through it. We need to deal with it, to understand the fear of it, to understand the heat and the ferocity of it, to grasp the Saviour's suffering when he endured it on account of our sins. In today's world, we must speak it truthfully and clearly as the Bible says it, because it's the one aspect that has been largely missing from the preaching of the gospel in the last 50 years, or particularly in the last 10 to 20. But here it is, without mixture, the cup of his indignation, and look, it gets worse. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone 
in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the, you think it'd stop there, wouldn't you? But no, no. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. Is that enough? No. They have no rest. Day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. And you think, well, and then there's just a little ray of light here. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, they may rest. Remember there was no rest? There was no rest in verse 11, no rest day and night. Yet for the believer, he says, there is, they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Now that's quite a picture, isn't it? Three angels, quite a picture, quite a picture. You saw the one calling, there's like a call in that first one and then there's an announcement and there's almost a sense of wonder in the announcement. I mean, Babylon, who would have thought Babylon would ever have fallen? And then there's that stern voice of warning of the judgment to the person who is the unbeliever and then there's that vivid and horrifying description of the damnation of the lost. And when we move through later in the book, you will see that hell is a terrible place. It's a terrible place. It's a terrible place. However, let's go back firstly and get that we've got the picture. And we're going to look at the first angel in particular. The background, yes, there's the ominous storm clouds, quite clearly. It's a back, it's a, it's a dark background. It's, it's clouds. It's, there's lightning there. There's, you can hear the rumble of the thunder and the, the, the actions of God and the, the doom of the unsaved and the coming of judgment and the fall of all that man has organized together against a holy God. And, and then against that dark, dark background, there's this angel calling out and he's holding up a, like this great placard in flashing lights for all to see. He says, I've got the everlasting gospel. Like in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 2, there's darkness shall cover the earth. We've had that this morning and gross darkness cover the people. Yet shining in that darkness which has covered the earth in the picture that we've got here and the gross darkness that's taken hold of the people in that darkness shines these words, the everlasting gospel. And it's here right in the presence of imminent judgment. I mean, just behind that angel with his, is it where his sign held up? The storm clouds are already beginning to burst. And behind the first wave of the storm clouds of judgment that brought Babylon to its knees lies the fury of the storm, of the wrath of an almighty God. Yet, the gospel shines against that background even while the judgment is well and truly on its way, it is imminent and right up to the point of its falling, it still shines. It's the only solution to escape from judgment. And right up to the last moment, the marvel of this picture is that it conveys to us 
is that God is offering a message of mercy. God is offering a message of mercy. I mean, what a God. What a God we have. And when you read this, you sort of grasp the meaning of Habakkuk, don't you? When, you know, when he hears of coming judgment on Israel, he just finally, he's just, his final prayer seems to be, O Lord, in wrath, in wrath, he says, remember mercy. Thank God he does. You must understand this is a beautiful picture of the God that we have, a God who would fain offer mercy long before he would choose to show to show judgment. He's the God who is long-suffering. He is a God of patience. He is a God who's not willing that any should perish. That's the point of this here. He would fain show mercy rather than come in judgment. Is indeed, judgment is God's last and final work. Mercy is there to the final break of judgment. And as James says, Mercy glories over judgment. I love that. Mercy glories over it. It shines so bright in its fullness and triumph. There it is. An offer for a sinner. No matter how deeply died in sin the sinner is, an offer of mercy and an escape from judgment. That's what you're getting here. See? See, what you've got here is Psalm 103, isn't it? The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He is slow to anger. And he is plenteous in his mercy. What you've got here is the finale, and it is a grand finale to Psalm 2 that we keep on referring to when we talk about Mount Zion and we talk about the Lamb. And we see the Lord, that God has anointed his king upon his holy hill of Zion. And the people of the earth have gathered themselves together. They've united together against the Lord and against his Christ. And they've, they've cried out, let's throw off his control. Let's take over command of everything. We'll take the world and we'll determine our destiny. And he that sits in the heavens, he laughs in derision. And he sets his king upon his holy hill of Zion and he declares the decree and he speaks the word and he says you're going to break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel and then what happens at the very end of that gloomy glorious picture gloomy picture of coming judgment there comes those lovely words kiss the son lest he be angry with thee and thou perish in the way and what faces them is everlasting and eternal judgment the first angel is there right up to the last minute you see the everlasting gospel, shining the light of the mercy of God to a world darkened by sin, to sinners lost and ruined in the fall in the kingdom of darkness. And you and I must give thanks this morning that by the grace of God, that mercy has been shown me. Sometimes, you know, you have you ever felt like, I don't know that I ever have, so I shouldn't say it, but, you know, there's a sense of, inadequacy in our ability to understand our own personal sinfulness. You know, the Apostle Paul says, sinners, he said, of whom I am chief. And the expositors say, well, of course, he was exaggerating. He wasn't exaggerating. He was saying exactly how he's felt. Of whom I am chief. And then he says, but mercy was shown me. He said, I saw this everlasting gospel. I heard the message against the damnation of my sins. And in grace, God reached out and mercy was shown unto me. And it was so for every one of us. What did the publican say when he got up there to the temple? He couldn't lift up his eyes to heaven and he beat upon his breast and he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, it's the sinner, you see, the sinner. 
Now that's what you've got in these pictures. That's what we're getting introduced to in the understanding of it, is the God that we have, the God of mercy. When mercy, mercy from on high came down to rebels doomed to die. And there came a day when we said, tis mercy all immense and free. And oh my God, it found out me. This is the wonder of the picture. We're starting to tease out just a, a little bit of the meaning of it. And I want you to grasp the fact that this is the kind of God that we have. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of holiness, righteousness and justice and judgment. Yes, he is a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who delights to pardon, a God who delights to forgive, a God who willeth not the, the, the death of any, the perishing of any sinner, but would wait with patient grace and arms outstretched to bless, ready to forgive, ready to receive, calling through the general call of the gospel, whosoever will, let him come unto me. The last, the great day of the feast, the Lord Jesus stood, didn't he, and cried, Whosoever will, whosoever thirsteth, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his inward parts, would, out of his inward parts, out of his belly would flow those rivers of living waters. The glory of the refreshing stream within that flows without into a world of darkness shining the glorious light of the truth of the mercy of our God. Now the point I want you to get also this morning is that this idea of God being a God of mercy he has always been that. There's a bit of a mixture here sometimes where we think there's a God in the Old Testament and there's the God of the New Testament. You know, the God of the Old Testament, well, it was pretty tough and it was law and it was judgment. And then we get to the New Testament and then he sort of changed his character. Oh, please. All right? No. This book is one, our God is one. I must admit, I have a little bit of sympathy with the preacher who said once, to his congregation, if I could do one thing, I'd like to do it. He said, but I can't do it. I'd like you to go to that part of your Bible where he said, you get to the end of Malachi and the next page says the New Testament. Like this is a whole new book. He said, I wish you'd just rip them out. <laughs> he said, just read on through and see the continuing fullness of the Old Testament and the revelation of Christ and the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There is no difference. I want you to just look back and, and just see how God has worked for a minute as you move through the pages of Scripture because um, what's, what really is the first picture in Scripture of judgment? I mean the first clear picture where it's very obvious. And you just have to stand there at the Garden of Eden, wouldn't you? Right? Now you can go to the Garden of Eden and have a lovely story about harmony, peace, bliss, fellowship, joy, fullness, satisfaction, God resting, God rejoicing, God seeing everything good, man enjoying everything is good. Stop a minute, stop a minute, take a second look. A chapter later at Adam and Eve. And you can see there the picture of judgment. They are actually driven out because of sin. Please, there's one sin, there's judgment. And I, I pictured in my mind, because I'm still trying to think in pictures, not trying to, they just come like this if you think about it. You could, can you just see, can you just see Adam and Eve? There they were there in the garden. How happy. Can you see the smile on their face? Can you see the contentment? Can you see the radiance? They were made in the image of God. And there they, they were enjoying their creator and everything blessing that he could give them. And then you look at them now after the fall, driven out. And you can see them sort of, just if you were going to paint a picture, what would you paint? Behind me there, I'm Adam, there's the gates of Eden and they're shut. There's a cherubim, there's a flaming sword. 
There's a voice that says you'll never get your hand on the tree of life. Never. And then you say, you can picture, they got their face towards what? A cursed earth? Eh? They got the sweat of your brow. They've already spiritually died. Their fellowship and sense of God has just been broken at that point by sin. And they're going to, in the strength of spiritual death, they're going to face physical death and a cursed earth. You know, barred and banished and driven out and, what, do they stand like this? You know, with sort of slouched shoulders and tragedy written all over their faces. In front of them, it's just this darkness and death. Behind them is bliss and paradise and yeah, ringing in their ears. What can they still hear? What can they still hear? What will give them just one heartbeat of hope? That blessed message that God himself gave before he sent them out, the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. And the incredible thing is that even there, that place where we can see the picture of the initial judgment of God against sin, where we can understand it, the message of mercy came out. There was something of an everlasting gospel. That's what it was, the gospel message. The message of hope could even bring some sense of sense of relief into the heart of a poor, miserable pair driven out because of sin. And the gospel was preached at the very gates of Eden in the place of judgment. The initial judgment picture of Scripture, and here it is in Revelation, we're getting towards the final judgment picture. Because in the end of this chapter, you have got the final judgment of God, a picture of it. And what's happening? The everlasting gospel. Look, you could just take this through Scripture. Just take you a little bit. For, what about the flood? I mean, that that's ultimate judgment, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever pictured the idea of the rain coming down, the water's coming up, the ark sort of bobbing on the top, and just getting, you know, knee, ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, chest deep, rooftop deep, hilltop deep, mountaintop deep, destruction, cry, despair, the wrath of God against a world which had become totally corrupt. And the heart of man was only set to do evil continually. And the end of all flesh, he says, has come before me. And there's going to come a judgment like this world has not seen since, as yet. And in the middle of it all, what do you get? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you know what happened? God moved in judgment, but he first of all sent Noah to build an ark for all those years. What is it? Something like 120 years. And throughout that entire period of time, Noah was a, was given the opportunity to preach righteousness and the door of that ark stayed open as a place of refuge and safety and in the mercy of God, the warning went far and wide that there was coming judgment, there was an opportunity for salvation, there was an open door in the ark and there was a message going out bidding them to come. It's incredible, isn't it? You see how God works. You see how he works in the flood. You see how he worked even in Mount Sinai. I mean, Mount Sinai was a terrifying place. It was a place where sin was spelt out. There was darkness. There was blackness. There was the voice of thunder. There was the barring of anybody going towards the mountain or there would be, so much as a beast would be struck dead. There's even Moses standing there quaking with fear and there's thundering and there's the voice of God and there's a sense of the awesome holiness and justice of God and what judgment might come upon sin, and it's written down the commandments of God on tables of stone. There they are down there at the bottom of the mountain, and they're worshipping a golden calf and saying, this is the calf that brought us up out of Israel. And the 
Now that's the end of Israel, isn't it? Woof, wiped them off the planet after that. But you know, it didn't happen that way. God listened to the plea for mercy. That's what God did. And then they gave the law a second time. And in that very place in Sinai, those beautiful words were uttered. The Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. You see how that judgment, mercy is always offered. And it's the whole story of Israel's history, isn't it? It's the whole story of his history. Because you get rebellion and you get repentance. And every time there's, there's repentance, God actually takes them back again. And the thing goes on for centuries. I, I don't know about you, but you read through the book of Kings and we'll read through any of the Old Testament history of Israel and you think, this is ridiculous, you know? One moment they're, they're turning to God in repentance, the next minute they're off doing the same thing again. And then they, you think, well, God's going to wipe them out and they repent and they come back and God forgives them all over again. And so the cycle goes on and we think, oh, poor old Israel, they're such an inferior bunch of people because <laughs> we've got no sense of our own wandering waywardness and sinfulness and therefore perhaps do not appreciate the fullness of the mercy of our God. See, mercy is pity. It's compassion. It's the withholding of judgment when it was so richly deserved. And unless you know you're a sinner, you'll never appreciate God's holding back the judgment you deserve. And until you realize how big a sinner you are, so you will not have a big appreciation of mercy. And I want to say to all, to all of us here who are getting old or are already old, I believe what somebody told me when I was a child, and he was an old man. And he said this, when you're young, you will rejoice in grace, all the blessings of God flowing to you. But he said, when you get older, you will start to appreciate more the meaning of mercy. You, if you're older here and you say, well, I don't get you, can I just say this to you? Because as you get older, you don't learn how much better you are. You realize how much worse you are than what you thought you ever were. Because time will reveal to you the sinfulness of your own heart. And but for the mercy of God, you would have deserved judgment. And so you get that sense of mercy was shown even to me. And what you get with the whole history of the Old Testament climax is really with the Lord Jesus coming into the world. I mean, he came unto his own. He went straight to them to bring them to himself. His own, they received him not. And so what happened really? Have you ever looked at the, the history of the Lord Jesus speaking to, the, speaking to Israel? You, you get to that point, the last week in the Lord's life, and each day he went from Bethany into Jerusalem and did something, gave some ministry, took some action. But there's one time when it says when he came and he, he got to Jerusalem, he came to Jerusalem and he just stood there and he wept. It's one of the few times in the scripture that the Lord Jesus wept. We know the others, I won't go into that. And he stands there weeping in his heart saying, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood or her chickens under her wings and ye would not. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets, that kills all those messengers I sent to you, how often I would have gathered you, how often I would have shown you mercy, and I stand days before my crucifixion, and I call you yet, because, because ye would not, and now your house is going to be left unto you desolate. There's only judgment left. 
There's mercy and there's judgment. And this is the picture you've got here, right in the forefront. And I've pictured it and I've tried to emphasize it and I don't want to overdo it, but I want to impress you with it. The mercy of the gospel against a dark background of judgment and the fact that mercy's been shown us and it's mercy all immense and free. And oh my God, it found out me. <laughs> We're singing, Wesley's right, you know, Wesley's right. Now what's he got here, this angel? He's got the everlasting gospel. And I just want to say this, that's a beautiful description of the message of salvation. It is, it's a beautiful description. You see, the very message came from one of whom it is said, from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. So an everlasting God gives an everlasting gospel. And it's an everlasting gospel that provides an everlasting or eternal salvation. Hebrews chapter 5, being made perfect, he became the author of an eternal salvation. You see, everlasting gospel, everlasting God, eternal salvation. In chapter 9, it provides an eternal redemption. It's no wonder the redeemed upon Mount Zion are singing that song. They understand what they've secured is never going to be taken from them. They understand that what they've secured, those two beasts on earth with all their raving madness will never take it from them. And the very, dra- the very dragon himself will never be able to get them. What does it say? Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to those who obey him. And they've got the eternal redemption. Eter- he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained an eternal and everlasting redemption for us. And if you go on in the epistle, he says that we have received an eternal inheritance. If you want to read Peter, he'll say it's an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away. No, no, it lasts an everlasting salvation, an eternal redemption, an everlasting gospel, an eternal inheritance. And by the time you get through further in the book of Hebrews, what are you landed with? We are perfected forever. He is perfected forever, them that are sanctified. There's everything, there's nothing missing, you see. It's full and it's complete. It's unblemished, it's matured, it's lasting. It is eternal. John 3.16, if you like. He loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should have what? Everlasting life. The outcome of an everlasting gospel, you see. It brings everlasting blessing. I mentioned it this morning. It takes us into, what is it? The everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will never know darkness again once you've come into that everlasting kingdom. An abundant entrance, it says, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just get it, grip it further. This, the eternal nature of the believer's salvation and inheritance brought to them by a gospel of everlasting qualities and blessings. Because the existence of this gospel, what makes it everlasting, the existence of the blessings from that gospel, what makes them eternal or everlasting, is because the whole of salvation hinges on the work of a priest. It's a, the priest is someone who brings man to God, who mediates, mediator between God 
and man. He enables, he acts on behalf of man so that he can take man and he can bring them right into the presence of God. And the priest, the Lord Jesus, who has done that for us, has an everlasting priesthood. So the thing originated with a priest who did a work, who took that role as priest and mediator and one who would be the intermediary between us and God, and he took that place eternally. That's the teaching of Hebrews. He has got, he is a priest forever. See, he's not going to die again. And we're not going to have to have another priest raised up and see that he can do the job and make it last. No, no, no. He lives in the power of an endless life. He is a priest and a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest who offered the one sacrifice for sins forever. He's the priest who ever lives, ever lives to make intercession for us, who will always be there on our behalf as, as it were, the connecting link between us and God. And through his continuing work, based upon the value of a sacrifice he made in the past, which has continuing effect and value, we shall enjoy the continuing blessings of an eternal salvation brought to us by an everlasting gospel which brought eternal redemption. See it all together. It's wonderful, isn't it? These are the pictures. It's all in a picture. The priest, the one who lived and suffered, and he now lives to make intercession for us. You see, I say it again. It's an everlasting gospel. It's based on the blood of the everlasting Covenant, and it brings everlasting life. I'll stop there. Let's look upward, onward, homeward to eternity, and realize that what we've got now will last through the stormiest of times on earth. But you know, it'll even take us through the day of wrath, and the judgment of God, rock of ages cleft for me. When I see thee on thy throne, when I see thee on thy judgment throne, when I rise to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. It'll take us through the storm of the wrath of God's judgment into the blissful, eternal wonder of a heaven and the glorious blessing that lies ahead of the kingdom of light into which no darkness will ever come. For the city will have no need of a light, for the Lamb is the light thereof. And eternally the radiance of God will shine out in the face of Jesus Christ for us to bask in, to be enveloped by, to grasp and to respond to with an ability and a capacity and an understanding far beyond now and the eternal glories gleam afar to nerve our faint endeavor. Meanwhile, to watch, to work, 
toward and then to rest forever. May God encourage us all this morning and bless us. Let's pray. So, Lord, we come and just are grateful for lifting our hearts again. We commenced earlier in the week with the thought of the Lord Jesus coming into the world and the marvel of that divine intervention of the light that came into the darkness and the wonder of the babe of Bethlehem's manger. And, Lord, we said, who is he in yonder store? And we fall down and we crown him Lord of all. And now as we close and part one from another, we're looking onward and homeward to that blessed day of a second coming and the meaning of it. We stand in the midst and we rejoice in the truths of this glorious everlasting gospel and pray humbly, help us, Lord, to shine the light in this dark, dark world. We commit all to thee and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our portion, our encouragement, our nourishment and our strength in the days that lie ahead. In his name, amen.